The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. For Christmas of 2016 and for Easter of 2017, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof did an experiment. The title of both of his columns is Am I a Christian? And he asked two different professing Christians, one of a conservative persuasion and one of a theologically moderate persuasion, whether or not he was a Christian. The first person he interviewed was Pastor Tim Keller for Christmas of the more traditional historic conservative persuasion. The second person he interviewed was former President Jimmy Carter on Easter of a more moderate progressive theological persuasion. Both people, he asked the question, am I a Christian? Now, For both people, Nicholas Kristof admitted that he does not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which means the answer to Nicholas Kristof should have been a very easy one to give because Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And 1 Corinthians 15 17 says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is is in vain, and we are still dead in our sins. So it's actually a very straightforward question. But to muddy the question a little bit, Nicholas Kristof said this, though I don't believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I think he had a lot of good ethical teachings, and my favorite is the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that has been hated by many, but misunderstood by perhaps even more. Last Sunday, I illustrated from Virginia Stem Owens with her Texas A&M University students how she assigned to them the student on the mount or the Sermon on the Mount. And the students overwhelmingly wrote how much they hated Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which put them in common company with many people who have written any way to equivocate and not have the Sermon on the Mount apply to them. But do you remember the one student who wrote that the Sermon on the Mount, in his opinion, was at best a guide to good manners. <laughs> and that represents really the same position of Nicholas Kristof, New York Times columnist. The Sermon on the Mount, at best, maybe is just a guide to good manners. Now, I fear that millions of Americans actually approach the Sermon on the Mount and the Bible itself that way. Because millions of Americans approach God as someone who essentially wants you to be a good person but certainly not someone who needs to radically transform us from the inside out. So let me remind you why the kingdom of heaven, the Sermon on the Mount, was hated by its original audience and why it is still rejected by our American audience. Remember, every time Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he did so on a mount, (laughs) on a mountainside, because he was speaking something that was so revolutionary that he couldn't share it in the centers of power and influence. But not only was what he's sharing something that was a contrast to the kingdom of this world, but further, the kingdom of heaven is nothing like the man-made religiosity God talk of this world. In other words, not only is the kingdom of heaven nothing like the kingdom of this world in its secularity, but also the kingdom of heaven is nothing like the religion of this world. 
Now, I want to show you from the Bible that what I'm saying is actually there. (laughs) So if you can follow quickly, we're going to go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and I'm going to point out the the places where Jesus contrasts the kingdom of heaven with the religious version of the kingdom of this world. Look now in Matthew 5, verse 20. I'll just cherry pick some, and then we'll go back and go through it more clearly. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So apparently there are religious people that are part of the kingdom of this world who will never go to heaven, no matter how good they've been. Now, Matthew 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Notice they're praying and they're giving to the needy. But they're hypocrites. Matthew 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Are there religious people who fast? Yes, and yet Jesus calls them hypocrites. Matthew 7, verse 5. You hypocrite... Take the log out of your own eye. And Matthew 7, verse 29, the very end, the response to the sermon, for he was teaching them as someone who had authority, not as their own scribes. So not only is Jesus contrasting the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this world, he's contrasting the kingdom of heaven with the phony man-made religion of the kingdom of this world. The word hypocrite, in fact, means someone who wants to be seen a certain way by their peers And yet God knows them to be something different. Thus, the kingdom of heaven is not superficial appearance, but it's deeper than that and more than that. And this contrast is no light thing. In fact, it's of eternal significance. Jesus will end the Sermon on the Mount with four pairs of such stark contrast that their eternity is different. The first one is two gates. One is narrow and one is broad and wide. But where does the wide one lead? Destruction. The second is two trees. One has healthy fruit, one has bad fruit. But what happens to the tree with bad fruit? According to Jesus, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. The third pair is two appeals on the day of judgment. One person says, I know Christ. The other person says, I've done a lot of good works. And to him, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. The fourth pair is two foundations, two homes that are both built, but one is on the solid rock and the other is on sand. And what happens to the one that's on sand? Jesus says, it fell and great was the fall of it. So according to Jesus, these contrasts are of eternal Difference, But you know something I didn't get about the Sermon on the Mount the first few times I read through it? These pairs all look the same at a cursory glance. They have a superficial similarity. The two gates both look kind of similar. The two trees are both bearing fruit. He doesn't say the one has no fruit. It just has rotten fruit. The two foundations both have homes. Their difference is under the surface. And the two appeals made on Judgment Day, both are doing good works. So if I haven't scared you yet, (laughs) it should be frightful now. Jesus' point is that there are millions, he says, many people who superficially appear to be good people but have never supernaturally been born again. And therefore, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So let's talk very honestly for a couple moments. Because of COVID, many churches aren't meeting and they're putting a lot of what they do online. And so in the months that I've been here, a discipline I've tried to do is I try to watch churches in the area, particularly Five Points, Hayes Barton, near downtown, of all denominations, so I get a sense of what people in Raleigh are being told on a given Sunday. This week, I was watching a pastor in the area from another denomination, and he told his parishioners that they were all born good, that they were born good people. To which I immediately thought when David said, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or in Romans 3 that says there is none that do good. Or when Jesus says there is none good but God. But see, this religiosity confuses us about what it means to actually be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Because didn't we just read by Jesus that both people in the kingdom of heaven and people in the kingdom of this world, they both give to the poor. They both pray. They both fast. They both do good works. Let's talk about all those for a moment. Have you noticed that just about everybody gives to the poor? Giving to the poor is a good thing. Christians should give to the poor. Jesus expects his disciples will give to the poor. As a church, we gave to the poor and needy over Thanksgiving. It's a good thing. But don't confuse that as a necessary evidence that you're born again. In an affluent age and in an affluent area, giving to the poor, can I say it bluntly, is something of a competitive sport. People are tripping over one another to make sure they let you know how much they've been giving to the poor. Think of how many American companies are crooked and evil and they gouge their clients, but on their website, they let you know what percentage they give to the community that's in need. You see, the reality is all sorts of people give to the poor. That may not mean anything about whether or not you've actually become a citizen of the kingdom. Let's talk about prayer. Have you noticed how ubiquitous prayer is? Nearly everybody prays. In 2014, I read a book called Churchless, and in it, on page 59, it had a Barna group research. And here's what Barna discovered. They asked first this question, do you believe that God exists? And then they took people who answered no. All right, don't, don't lose me. These are people who said, I do not believe God exists. And then they asked them if they had prayed in the last seven days. And 58% of them said yes. I don't believe God exists, but in the last seven days, I've prayed. Then they asked people, do you believe God exists? And then they asked them the kind of marks that show that you really have a relationship with God. All right, so do you believe in God? Yes, but do you ever attend church? They said no. Do you read your Bible? No. Have you ever witnessed to someone? They said no. Now, now that group that believes there's a God but doesn't follow him at all, they asked them the same question. Have you prayed in the last seven days? 95% said yes. In America, virtually anybody feels comfortable to say, hey, I'm praying for you. That is not necessarily an evidence that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Finally, doing good. Americans all believe that we're good people and that we live good lives. A couple of years ago, Netflix made a cartoon called Klaus, and we were watching it with our kids. And in short, it's about Santa Claus and about giving good gifts, which 
I probably shouldn't have watched it once I, <laughs> once I figured that out. But we're three quarters of the way through the movie and, and they're all making gifts and giving them to kids who, who need them. And then this song plays and there's this soaring song and you can feel the goosebumps on your body. But then they sing out these lyrics, kindness lives in everyone. So all it takes is standing up. You can touch it, you can feel it, but you can never steal it, but you can always be it. And here's this soaring arc to the narrative. Everybody's a good person. And I looked at my children and thought, no, 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 no. We need to be born again. Our church in Michigan had a, in God's grace, very good relationship with the local public school. And one day uh, I was at the public school and our church had, had donated to buy the football team pizza which costs a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> so we're there to feed the, the football team, and I had the joy of speaking to the team that day. And in the cafeteria at this public school on the wall was etched uh, like a, a maxim of a virtue for the school. And on the wall, it said this. It said, you don't have to be the athlete. You don't have to be the artist. You don't have to be the musician or the kid with straight A's. But you can be you. You can be the good kid. To which I thought, but who decides what's good? And who decides who's good? But yet we assume that we are good. Now, I don't say these things in a light way. And I know I have to say some hard things this morning. These are things that I'm trying to very carefully, rightly divide in God's word. But can I bear my heart with you for a moment? Is it not true that America has millions of people who live socially good lives who are not actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Is it not true that that's true in North Carolina? Is it not true that that's true in Raleigh? And don't you want those people to come to fully know Jesus Christ and be moved to the citizen of a kingdom of heaven? That burns on my chest. When I watch these videos of the churches in the area telling their parishioners, you're a good person, you're a good person, it kills me because they're going to condemn them to hell unless they realize that I'm poor in spirit and I bring nothing meritorious. I come to the kingdom with nothing and I only can accept Christ as my everything. So the title of today's sermon, one heavy on my heart, is Kingdom Living. And in the sermon, we're going to finish Matthew chapter 5. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to contrast the real kingdom of heaven with the fake religiosity that is so common in the kingdom of this world. And I'm going to give you the four points right away in case you haven't downloaded the notes offline already. Here's the four different contrasts Jesus will give. The kingdom of heaven has a different glory. The kingdom of heaven has a different righteousness. Third, the kingdom of heaven has a different obedience. And fourth, the kingdom of heaven has a different security. Now, have you ever on your cell phone taken a picture and you zoomed way in, maybe to make sure that you looked good? <laughs> and then you realized that you kind of forgot where you took the picture, so then you zoomed way back out and it reminded you where and when you were. Today, I can't get into every word and phrase like I normally would. You've heard me preach enough to know I do that. But I need to zoom out so that you know the point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to go over some passages a little faster to show the contrast that he's making. Let's begin number one. The kingdom of heaven has a different glory. Look now in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. These are declarations with admonitions with consequences. First, you are the salt of the earth. A declaration. 
Now, I'm from Michigan, and this morning I thought it was warm, and my neighbor told me I was crazy. (laughs) And up north, we use salt to melt ice and to melt snow. But that's not, of course, what it was meant to mean in the first century when Jesus gave the analogy. In this era, salt is a purifying agent. So think that way when you read through the text. Salt is to make things pure. Salt is to purify things that would otherwise corrupt So he says, you are the salt of the earth, but then he gives an admonition. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's a rhetorical question. It cannot be restored. So the point is, if it's impure, it's not actually from God, right? If it doesn't have the actual distinctive purity, then it's of no value. So look at the end of verse 13. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I've read that you could go to the Middle East, Middle East today and go to Jerusalem and stand on a flat root and you would find disused salt that is no longer distinctively purifying. It's literally trampled on. Now think of Jesus' point. If something is distinctively purifying, it is of value. But if it is the same as everything around it, it is of no value. Think of the difference between the kingdom of heaven and phony religion in the kingdom of this world. Isn't it true that many moderate churches in America constantly want to move to wherever the culture is so that they can just fit in and seem relevant? And what does Jesus say? Well, then you might as well be thrown out. Because if you don't have a distinctive purifying value, what purpose are you? You might as well be walked on then. So now the next metaphor, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Again, it's the same point. Light is helpful when there's darkness. But if you're dark, you don't do any good in the darkness. So light is helpful when there's darkness and it shines. So he says, don't put the light in a basket, but on a stand so it can give light to all in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So salt has distinctive purity. Light has distinctive visibility. And it's supposed to shine and show a different beam of glory. Now, some people think that Jesus thinks it's wrong to do anything good in public. I like sports a lot. And so when Tim Tebow was kneeling in the end zone and praying to God, many commentators on ESPN and similar sports networks said, I don't think a Christian should do what he's doing in public. If you're a Christian, you should keep that to yourself. Now notice here in Matthew 5, Jesus says, your light should shine before men. But where are they getting that from? And the answer is chapter 6. You can flip over one chapter. Chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Why? Because it's wrong to do things in front of other people? No, because of the motive behind it. Look, in order to be seen by them. Verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. Verse 3, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And verse 5, even the prayer is done, notice, to be seen by others. So is it wrong for a Christian to live out his Christianity in public? Of course not. Everybody lives out who they are in public to some degree. The difference is not visibility versus invisibility. The difference is when you trace the beam of that light, what source does it go back to? Now chapter six says, if you trace the beam of this 
ostentatious giving. It goes back to the person. But Matthew 5, 16 says, if you trace the beam of the light of the citizens of the kingdom, it goes back to their father. In the 1800s, some seminarians were kind of geeking out the way seminarians do about good preaching in the city of London. And so they wanted to go see the three most well-known and well-loved preachers in the area in that day. And they went and saw the first preacher. And they walked out of the service that day and they said, what a great preacher, the way he has such brilliant insight and knows the text so well. Amazing, what a great preacher. And then they went and saw the second preacher. And they went out of the service that day and said, what a great preacher. His rhetorical skills, his ability to illustrate, what a great preacher. And then third, they saw Charles Spurgeon. And they walked out of the service that day and they said, what a great savior. You see, the difference is not visibility or invisibility. The difference is every single one of us lives in a certain way that when you trace what we're really about to its source, it either brings glory to us or glory to the Father. See, the kingdom of heaven isn't like religion in this world because religion in this world is really always about us. But the kingdom of heaven is really always about the Father. So when Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine, it's so that people can see your good works, and give glory to your Father who's the true source of them. And let me just say something to you that you know is true, but let me say it out loud. All of us, over time, you can tell what we're really about. All of us, over time, you can tell who we're really about. You're around someone long enough, you see what they're really about, and you will be able to trace that beam to where it's really from. The kingdom of heaven has a different source of its glory. Now, number two, the kingdom of heaven has a different righteousness. A righteousness fulfilled by another. Now, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus isn't throwing away the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In fact, he will fulfill all of it. So verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away. In Greek, we have not an iota, but it's the Hebrew yoda. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Not a dot. Hebrew letters would put dots so you know which letter it is. His point is he's fulfilling all the law. He's not skipping any of it. He's fulfilling all righteousness. So none of it will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least, but is in the kingdom of heaven because of their trust in the one who fulfilled it. The end of verse 19, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But verse 20, but I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're confused in verse 20, why won't the scribes and Pharisees make it to heaven? They're good people. They pray, they fast, they give to the poor. They live socially respectable lives. Jesus will say it bluntly in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes, because you are hypocrites. You have neglected the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, but you instead, like blind guides, have strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. I've read lots of definitions of what religion is, but here's my own for whatever it's worth. I like to define religion this way. Religion is the belief that you're a good person. Religion is the belief that you're a good person. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, the point is the scribes and Pharisees believe that they're good people. 
But unless you are better than good, unless you recognize you're not good and see the fulfillment of righteousness by another, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, religious people tend to think they're pretty good people because they follow their own sets of rules. They've made up the game and they change the game on the fly so that they come out looking good at the end of it. We do this all all the time. Let me explain. Imagine a parent in a heated argument with their teenager and the teenager has been caught for doing something bad. What will the teenager often do in that moment? To make it clear that they're not that bad, they will say, well, at least I've never done this. And in that moment, they're saying, see, bad people are like that, but I'm like this. And if it's a very heated argument, the teenager may say to the parent, well, you know what? At least I never did what you did. Now, it's not just teenagers that do this. It's, it's also politicians. <laughs> Draw whatever conclusion from that you want. But many politicians will get online and say, well, at least I believe in climate change. At least I don't extinguish human life. At least I care about children in cages. You see, they'll come up with some way to say, you see, I'm a good person. You're a bad person. Because at the end of the day, humans want to believe that we are good people. But in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus says, you think you're righteous? You think you're more righteous than the Pharisees? No, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. See, the righteousness that comes from the king of the kingdom is not inherent within us. It is given to us by grace. It is not something that we earn. It is something that is fulfilled in our place and then is granted to us. We inherit it. We don't have it within us. Jesus alone fulfills all righteousness. So we must come to him with an empty hand saying, I am poor in spirit. Now to show again how radically different the kingdom of heaven is from the kingdom of this world, Jesus will now give six antitheses. They're verses 21 through 48. And in these antitheses, you're going to hear the same, uh, r- the same rhythm in each one. He'll start by saying, it has been said, but I say to you. Now, each time he says it has been said, picture the way humans do religion. But then when he says, but I say to you, picture true citizen of the kingdom, revolutionary. So first, the kingdom is different in its glory. Second, the kingdom is different in its righteousness. But now third. The kingdom is different in its obedience. It's not superficial, it's supernatural. So the first antithesis is anger. Look now in verse 21 of Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old. So this is how this world tends to tell you is sufficient. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift in the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So the cheap, superficial Religion of this world tends to say things like, don't murder, murder is bad, and most everyone agrees, at least in theory. 
And Jesus says, no, that superficiality is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something supernatural, something from the inside out, something that changes even your internal anger, even your comments about your brother or sister. And if we're honest, who couldn't admit that they've been angry with someone? Who wouldn't admit that they've said something to someone they shouldn't say? Who wouldn't need to admit that sometimes we've been too slow to reconcile with someone that we've wronged? Do you think Jesus takes internal sin lightly? What did he say in verse 22 is the liability of callous speech or internal hatred. It is hell of fire. What did he say in verse 26 of those who are slow to reconcile? They will knock it out until they've paid the last penny. According to Jesus, how we treat our brothers and even how we treat accusers matters, not just the superficial things we see, but the supernatural things inside of us. But now the second antithesis is lust. Here Jesus will say that lust is evil, not just adultery. So look in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And most people think adultery is bad. But verse 28, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better it is that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into, and he says the word again, hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into and Jesus won't blush again. He'll say it again, hell. According to Jesus then, those who won't take radical steps, not literal gouging or amputation, but metaphorical radical steps of amputation don't actually have the supernatural work of the kingdom in them. They just have the superficial religiosity of this world. Many people still think, why is it a big deal what you think about in your own heart? And think about how difficult this is to even practice in our culture of ambient pornography. Why does it matter what you think about in your heart? Harvard Medical School did an experiment a number of years ago. It took two groups of students who had never learned how to play the piano, and it put them into two different control groups. The first control group was taught how to play a musical piece, but they were never allowed to actually play it on the piano. They just had to visualize it. The second control group was taught how to play the piece, but they were allowed to use the actual piano. And at the end of Harvard's five-day control group, they let them play in a competition to see who would be better. And do you know what they found? Those who had only imagined playing played equally as well as those who had actually played. In their conclusion, they wrote this. Those who had actually just imagined it, from a neuroscientific point of view, Imagining an act and doing it are not as different as they sound. To prove it, they said this, when people close their eyes and visualize a simple object such as the letter A, the primary visual cortex lights up just as if you were looking at the letter A in front of you. Brain scans show that in imagination and action, the same activity occurs in your brain. In other words, Harvard is now affirming what Jesus already said, (laughs) that if you look with lustful intent, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Therefore, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is more than the superficiality, but it is something supernatural that transforms you from the inside out. 
This week, I read about a very sad example of what happens that allows us to live hypocritically as if we publicly are great people when privately we've been persisting in unrepentant, God-defaming sin. And that was through the life of Ravi Zacharias, who has spent much of his life in the public eye over decades as really a Christian philosopher, talking about the importance of Christ and the logical consistency of Christ. But it's sadly now been confirmed that over that decades, he was engaging in sexual assault and abuse and rape and mistreatment of countless women. And as that's come to light, the Christian world, as always, is wrestling with how do we make sense of that? But I think the clearest answer is by Joe Carter, who writing for the Gospel Coalition said this, undergirding the flaws in a life like this one is a view of cheap grace. Cheap grace is explained well by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But even if you don't know Bonhoeffer, do you know where the Bible talks about grace and, consi- and continuing in sin? Think of Romans 6.1. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Do you know what the answer is? God forbid. Verse two says, how could we who have died to sin continue living in it? Verse four says, because we've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Or to state it a little bit more negatively, 1 Corinthians six says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually immoral, and then it goes on to say, nor adulterers who persist in it, will inherit the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, we must recognize this. We are saved solely by the merit and work of Christ, but the merit and work of Christ will bring about transformation over time in our life. And we cannot unrepentantly shake our fist at God and claim cheap grace. Cheap grace has pervaded the American church and dulled our sensitivity to what Christ warns us of so sternly. Here now, verse 31. As we continue, Jesus will continue to talk about the radical obedience of the kingdom versus the superficial obedience of this world. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is not everything the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. It's not everything Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. So we'll come to those things later. But let's at least hear what he says here. What he says here is based on Deuteronomy 24. In that passage, the Old Testament Jews read that if your wife is no longer pleasing in your sight, you can give her a certificate of divorce and just simply move on. And the point was this. If you no longer like your spouse, you don't need to stay with them anymore. And in actual documentation that was written by the Pharisees, they gave grounds to divorce your wife, including if you don't think she's pretty anymore, or if you think she's burned the meals. Those were reasons people were divorcing one another. But at least they were given a certificate. And so that was just enough to quell their conscience. Hey, what I've done is legal. But Jesus' point here is, even if what you've done is legal, it might still be evil. 
because in God's sight, you've treated something sacred as profane and something that's meant to be serious as casual and self-servant. So he warns about a superficiality that treats marriage as a contract rather than a covenant. If it's a contract, if you don't like it, you just get out. But if it's a covenant, then as much as it is possible, you remain committed to it. And Jesus gives one example where you maybe might not be able to, and that would be sexual immorality. And there are other examples too. But here his point is to not lightly do away with it. Now verses 33 through 37, Jesus has a similar problem that's being done here. People are doing things that are legal, but are actually evil. So verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've done. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Of the passages we'll read in Matthew 5, this one I think is the hardest to understand because of its cultural distance, but let me try to explain it simply. In Jesus' day, if you swore to God, that was a legally binding contract. And so a way people would try to manipulate the law is they would swear to heaven or they would swear to the temple and then they would break the agreement, but they would say, huh, I actually didn't swear to God, I only swore to the temple. To help us understand how we might do that today, think of children who a mom tells them, will you clean their room? And the child says, yes, mom. And the mom comes home, did you clean your room? No, but I had my fingers crossed behind my back when you asked me to clean it. It's a way to get out of the agreement. Now as adults, we don't put our fingers behind our back and cross them. What we do instead is we make contracts that are 100 pages long that have very vague language that have lots of hidden footnotes so that when you buy your kitchen cabinets, you don't realize that if they install them incorrectly, they don't have to return them. If that sounds like a true story, we can talk about it later. <laughs> My point is that you can be very unethical in your business even though you were technically legal, you see? So Jesus is saying, yes, what you did was technically legal. You didn't swear to God, you swore to the temple, but it's obviously evil. If you are a follower of Christ, a citizen of the kingdom, frankly, you shouldn't even need a contract. That's his point. You should just be able to say what you're gonna do and then do it. And then if you fail to do it, own it and be honest about it. Just be truthful. See, again, the kingdom of this world is superficial. The kingdom of God is supernatural. Now, the last two examples are about retaliation of enemies. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have the cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, let me give a warning here. All of these examples have counterexamples. For example, Jesus said it's wrong to be angry, but don't forget Ephesians 5 says, be angry, but do not sin. Jesus said it's wrong to call people a fool, but in Matthew 23, he will call the Pharisees a fool. So there is a time that's appropriate. And in this example, Jesus is not saying to give yourself as a victim of abuse or serious mistreatment. So I wanna make sure we're clear on that. So then what is Jesus saying? He's saying, here's the best way I can explain it. You know how you're very long-suffering with someone who you have an obligation to be long-suffering to? Maybe you have an uncle 
or, a, or your mom or your brother, and you might say, man, they're, they're, they're a lot to put up with, but, but that's my mom, you know. Jesus is saying, why wouldn't you also do that with your enemies? If you're a citizen of the kingdom, wouldn't you be just as long-suffering with someone who's an enemy as you would someone who's a brother? Wouldn't you also let that enemy test you and test you and still you would be long-suffering with them? That's how the kingdom of heaven works. And so now verse 43 through 47, you've heard that it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, which of course the Bible never said that. It said, love your neighbor. We added the hate your enemy part. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not just the people who are easy to love, the ones who are hard to love too. Why? So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Because what is God like? God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Have you ever thought about how many people like climbing the mountains, like going to the beach, and they curse God all during it, and God still lets them enjoy it? God lets them see the sunlight and the sunrise and the sunset. They might sit out on the ocean using God's name in vain the whole time, and yet he lets them enjoy the beauty of that moment. He sends rain on people who curse him. He sends rain on people who love him. And he tells us to do the same thing. The people who love you, love them. The people who hate you, love them too. So the verse continues, verse 46. If you only love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Everybody does that. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Everybody does that. But see, the kingdom of heaven is not superficial, it's supernatural. But now the exclamation point of it all is verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So here's how you should be feeling right now. That hurt. That's <laughs> how you should be feeling. Those last 20 verses hurt. That's who I am, Lord. And this is why he concludes with verse 48. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect so that we will respond this way. Lord, you are holy. I am unholy. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. It should lead us to cry for forgiveness and grace for the one person who did fulfill the law. But it also should lead us to cry for the supernatural power to become more like our Father. So God, I am not perfect. So I come to you poor in spirit for salvation. But God, because you're my Father, change me from the inside out to be more like you in these qualities. See, Jesus Christ takes the law more seriously than anybody in America. America says, be a good person. Jesus says, no, be perfect. But the good news of the gospel is I've been perfect for you. And that is why we can quote along with John Newton to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. And that leads me to my fourth and final distinction. The church, the kingdom of heaven is different from the religious kingdom of this world because it has a different glory. It goes back to the Father. It's different from this world because it has a different righteousness. It's fulfilled by Christ. It's different from this world because it has a different obedience. It's not superficial. It's supernatural. But finally, here's the good news. It has a different security. This week I used my uh, 
Bible software to do a search of the word Father in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. All the times he said Father, I had the computer program print all of them out, and then I got out my highlighter, and I highlighted the pronouns in front of every time he said Father. And through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says, your Father, your Father, your Father, my Father, your Father, my Father. But there's one time he uses a different preposition, only one, a different pronoun. One time he uses the word our Father. Do you know where that one is? Matthew 6, right after he said, don't pray like those fake religious people who think they're going to be heard because of how they pray. There are many words. No, instead, you pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. You see what Jesus is saying? This is very important. The reason you can have security is not because you've been a great person, but because you've been brought to the Father through his perfect Son. You see? You see, to be able to pray our Father does exactly what John Newton said it would. It transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. The father is the reason we can be secure. The difference between the phony religion of this world and the true kingdom of heaven is the knowledge that God is my father because Christ has paid for my sin. Colossians 1 says it this way. Give thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, liberal religion in Raleigh and in North Carolina and in America tells us, hey, God loves you and he loves everybody and there is no sin, there is nothing wrong. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. But conservative religion says, you're a bad person and God probably hates you and you're not going to make it. But see, the gospel comes in and Jesus says, no, I didn't just abolish the law. I fulfilled it for you. See, the truth of the gospel is this. Our security ultimately is that we come not rich in spirit, but poor in spirit. And we come to the king who fulfilled all righteousness, the one person who is perfect, but who offers his perfection to us. So this morning, if you want to be able to pray, Our Father, it starts with Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this morning, don't say, God, I'm going to clutch to my reputation and clutch to my superficial goodness. Say, no, Lord, I have nothing, but please give me Christ because in him I have everything. But secondly, if indeed you've taken Christ as everything, then let us have the kingdom living that defines citizens of the kingdom of heaven. May we cry out with John in 1 John 5, the commandments of God are not burdensome for those who receive forgiveness through Christ. May God then work in you a different glory, a glory that traces a beam not to you, not to us, but to your name, O Lord, be the glory. May the kingdom of God work in you a different righteousness, So you pillow your head on the fulfillment of Christ in your behalf. May the kingdom of God work in you a radical obedience that's not superficial, but that is supernatural from the inside out. May the kingdom of God give you a different security. And may that security be John 6, 37. When Jesus said, all who the Father give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But as I warned you last Sunday, I warn you this Sunday. The kingdom of heaven has dawned and the kingdom of this world 
is crumbling. And so it is urgently important that you transfer your citizenship from the dying, crumbling kingdom of this world, even its religious version, to the eternal kingdom of heaven. Do you know why? We sing it almost every, Christian, almost every Christmas, and it wasn't written by Handel. It's Revelation 11, verse 5. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the kingdom that lasts. Are you in it? Let's pray this morning. God, I pray that you would move people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son. I pray you would move them there because in Christ we have redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins. Help us to realize that the phony religion of this world is fake and superficial. Help us to be alarmed if we hear people telling us that we're good people who don't need repentance and don't need rebirth. Help us to remember the sweetness of the gospel that Jesus could say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then the sweetness of the gospel is that he is the king who wears the crown of thorns, who goes to the cross, who rises victoriously so that all our sin is paid for. The truth is we could never be good enough because we have to be perfect even as our heavenly father is perfect. But once we are freed by finally being humbled enough to say, I am poor in spirit, God forgive me, then work the kingdom ethics in us so that rather than having superficial hypocrisy, we have supernatural transformation. Lord, change our hearts so that we think differently about anger and lust and lies and the way we treat even our enemies. And Lord, may that happen so that people can see our good works and glorify our Father who is the source of that power and strength and so that they may join us as brothers and sisters who have come to Christ, who have come to God through Christ, the perfect Son. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.